This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are gonna talk about it all. Dr. Christian Miller is the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. His research focuses on the philosophy of religion and contemporary ethics. He's co-directed the $3.9 million Beacon Project to examine moral exemplars, and more recently, the $5.6 million Character Project, which funded 28 scholars to examine the existence and nature of character and virtue. He's published two academic books, as well as one trade book, titled The Character Gap, How Good Are We? In this episode, Dr. Miller and I talk about the emergence, development, and varieties of the situationist challenge, the idea that situations dictate moral action, and that character traits may play little, if any, role in morality. All right, hi everyone. Today I am with Christian Miller. Christian, I am so grateful to have you here. We're going to be discussing situationism, particularly from a philosophical bent, which will be really interesting for me because I'm only familiar with it in the context of psychology. So Christian, thanks so much for for coming on the show. So great to be with you today. Yeah, so let's, um, let's go ahead and start with a little bit of your background. I always think that's fun. How did you become interested in the philosophy of morality at large? Well, it's probably the same time I became interested in philosophy in general, and that goes way back, all the way to high school. Most, wow. pe- most people don't get exposed to philosophy in high school. It's usually later on in college, but I had the good fortune of reading a lot of philosophy in about ninth and 10th grade on my own, especially works of ethics and morality. And then my, by my senior year, I uh, ran out of classes to take in my high school, so I went to a local college and yeah. by, by that time, I was so kind of interested in philosophy from my independent reading that I decided to sign up for Introduction to Philosophy with a professor named Dr. Bible, of all, of all names, <laughs> um, and took uh, his introduction class and then took two more classes with him. And at that point, I was, just, was really, really hooked. Uh, the formal uh, instruction in philosophy just kind of solidified my own personal interest. So from there, uh, I went off to college at, at Princeton and then graduate school at Notre Dame. And for whatever reason, ethics emerged as my favorite area of philosophy. Mm-hmm. I got, to, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that it's very applicable. So some areas of philosophy tend to be more abstract and it's hard to think, you know, does this really make any difference in society or in, in my own personal life? That's not the case at all with ethics. It's, it's obvious uh, mm-hmm. how it's really uh, applicable and makes a difference. Uh, and then secondly, I think it, w- it was more um, just easier for me to get my mind around uh, where when I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with questions like what is the nature of time or the nature of space or uh, can, is time travel possible? Some of these other philosophical questions, I just I have a hard time making much progress in my thinking about them. But when it comes to something like uh, where does morality come from or what is it to be a good person? Uh, or um, is uh, famine relief something that we should be contributing a lot more money to than we currently do? 
there I, I found I had views and I had intuitions and I had arguments and objections and responses, the kind of things that philosophers deal with. So both, it, it was both tangible and real world on the, uh, uh, together, tangible for me, something I could really wrestle with and applicable made a difference uh, yeah. in the world. Yeah, definitely. So when I was talking to you uh, just before we started this recording, we had mentioned that when we're talking about a sort of ethical philosophy, it's always good to start with an understanding of what morality is, what it means, and the perspective that you're coming from. So let's back up there, because today we'll be talking about situa situationism. Um, how do we, and situationism generally rests on, it, it's piggybacking off of this idea that people seem to assume character exists. So, um, and, and then that idea comes under attack. So what is character from your perspective or from the philosophical perspective before situationism really becomes a big challenge? Sure, sure. So starting with the broad heading of morality, uh, morality itself is very hard to define. What are, what's, what are the limits of morality? How do we distinguish morality from other topics like uh, the law or um, self-interest or other normative mm -hmm. realms out there? But within morality, it's fair to say that people talk about things like right and wrong, moral mm -hmm. obligations. They talk about good and bad, moral values. And then they talk about a third thing, character, moral character. So that's really been my focus in, in my research on morality. So honing in on character specifically, uh, we can think of character as how we're disposed to think, feel, and act when it comes to moral matters. So mm -hmm. my moral character is influences how I think about moral questions, how I'm motivated to act on moral questions, and then my actual behavior, what I do with respect to moral concerns. Hmm. So that's a kind of pretty abstract characterization. To make it a little bit more concrete, it's I think worth noting that character comes in, moral character comes in two different varieties. There's moral virtue, the good side of character, and moral vice, the bad side of, of character. Yeah. So if we, have, if we have example of moral virtue like honesty or compassion or courage, uh, we can take what I just said about character and maybe make it a little bit more relatable. So someone who's honest, that's part of their character, it's one of their virtues, so they're disposed to think in an honest way, to think it's important to tell the truth, to think it's important to not cheat or steal or, or lie. Also, our... Uh, disposed to be motivated and have emotions and feelings of an honest kind. So they want to tell the truth. Uh, they're moved to, uh, to, to not cheat or lie or steal. And then they actually do the, the things when they're in a relevant situation. So they actually are honest. They step up and when they're uh, on, on the, in the courtroom, they tell the truth under oath. Uh, when they're at the party and they have an opportunity to gossip and speak, spread malicious lies about someone they don't so you see that example of character being displayed by an honest person in their behavior but that behavior stems from their underlying thoughts and feelings which are also part of their character as well and then okay. the same the same is just to end it, uh sorry for the long response uh the same thing goes with vices 
So you have the virtues on the one hand, that's one part of character, and then the vices on the other side. Uh, so we take a virtue like honesty, we invert it, we get dishonesty. Courage, we invert it, we get uh, cowardice. Temperance, we invert it, we get intemperance. But interestingly, these vices function in a lot, much the same way. So they are dispositions also to think, feel, and act in a certain way. Uh, unfortunately, it's a, not a very admirable way. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting too, like what you're, it, it seems like we're talking about moral character specifically as it's going to relate to situationism. And you were saying, okay, morality is, is difficult to define, but we could also think about character as it relates to amoral characteristics, right? So there are uh, character... I was a little bit sloppy initially. Um, character itself is a broad concept and it, there are different kinds of character traits. So there are moral character traits. Mm -hmm. There are also character traits associated with other areas of life. For example, there are um, character traits associated with our thinking. Those are called epistemic character traits. There are character tra traits associated with uh, our self-interest, those are prudential character traits. Uh, there are character traits associated with athletics, with uh, aesthetics, beauty, uh, with religion, with civic engagement. So lots of different realms of life have character traits associated with them, and they lead people to behave well or behave badly in those particular realms. But okay. you're right to say that it, in my research and in a situationist discussion in philosophy, uh, the focus has been specifically on moral character traits. Okay. So did, from your perspective as a philosopher, did the big situationist, situationism or in psychology, I know it's often called the situationist challenge, which of those sort of emerged first? Was philosophy concerned about it first or psychology? No, philosophy is very much late to the game. Uh, so okay. the, now I should preface everything I'm going to say here with the with noting that I'm a, I'm a philosopher. I'm not a trained psychologist. And right. so I'm, I'm sure I'm going to make some mistakes that psychologists <laughs> gonna, are going to cringe about. So I, I'm a morning in advance. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, so there was this uh, person situationist, person situation debate in psychology in the 1960s and 70s, okay. often associated most prominently with Walter Michel's book, Personality and Assessment, which came out in 1968. And this is before my time. I wasn't even born then, but for when I read, uh, it was apparently a, a really big deal. There was uh, there were words like warfare and a blitzkrieg and uh, combat. And these the kind of militaristic words are used to describe the state of psychology at the time. Uh, there was questions about whether personality psychology would even survive anymore, whether hmm. uh, those departments would be shut down. There would be no more hiring and careers available in that field. So, uh, so that was uh, my understanding of uh, the psychology got there first. Okay. It was very prominent for a while, although then it uh, kind of went by the wayside in psychology in the late 70s and, and ever since. Um, philosophy comes along, and by that I mean a few philosophers writing at the late 1990s, early 2000s. Mm. They started reading some of this literature, people like Michelle, uh, Nisbet, Ross, other psychologists uh, talking about situationism. They also read a bunch of studies, classic studies that situations like to cite, like Darley and Batson's 
Princeton Theological Seminary helping experiments or mm. Bats, uh, or the uh, Milgram shock experiments from the 1960s. So they right. start reading these actual studies. And then they say, well, there's something of interest and relevance here going on in psychology to philosophers. That mm -hmm. philosophers should pay attention to this older development in psychology because it will actually help advance discussions in ethics specifically. And we can get into exactly how that is. Um, but so the sh the, now the short answer is philosophers came along about 30 years later, specifically the philosophers Gilbert Harmon at Princeton and John Doris at Washington University in St. Louis. <laughs> That's not what I expected. I, I have to admit, I feel like philosophers always beat us. So I'm surprised <laughs> that it came up in psychology first. <laughs> um, in general, I mean, philosophers have for a long time not been reading too much empirical literature. Okay. Uh, so, so, and this is a uh, unfortunate thing in my view. So that they would, do, I mean, this is stereotypical and overgeneralizing, but they would tend to do more just reflective conceptual analysis, hmm. thinking hard about concepts like knowledge or uh, the mind um, uh, or other things that morality uh, without drawing on the resources of, of empirical study. But that's really changed a lot in the last, say, 30 years. Uh, in philosophy of minds, philosophers of mind are really reading a lot of neuroscience. Uh, in ethics these days, we're, you know, we're really reading a lot of moral psychology, behavioral economics, and the like. So I'm, I'm very glad that eventually we've, we've caught up a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting, too, because I, I just had the honor of um, actually getting to interview Dan Batson for this podcast and asked him just briefly about his take on the situationist challenge in psychology since he was a part of that uh, mm -hmm study, um, this Good Samaritan study, and he kind of said he was surprised that it became like such a big deal because there were character traits that were predictive of things and it was a part of the study and that it wasn't just a situation mm. thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was kind of surprised. So um, when philosophers come and look at psychological literature, was it more like they were reacting to the, maybe hysteria is too strong of a word, but reacting to psychologists' reactions of, to the situation's challenge? Or were they actually, you know, kind of sitting down and wrestling with the literature, looking through it and being like, well, yeah, we actually have come to the conclusion that the situation seems to be more influential than character traits. Yeah, so I, I can't speak for for people who were, early on engaging in this in philosophy mm -hmm. as, as to what, what they were doing. But uh, my sense is uh, they, they were spending time reading the actual studies. Uh, so they were, they were reading uh, Milgram, his work. They were reading Darling Batson's original paper. They were reading uh, the, the bystander effect studies from the late 60s. Uh, another study that's often cited is Eisen and Levin's work on uh, mood and helping. Mm -hmm. So where, uh, for example, finding a coin or not in the coin return slot of a payphone made a big difference to subsequent helping to pick up drop papers or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were, it, it, was, it wasn't just um, reading some kind of 
surface level overviews of this movement historically. Okay. And then running with that. No, it was like, let me track down Eisen Levin's paper and go through the, the, the results myself and then see what I make of it. Yeah. Um, the, so, uh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. You finish your thought. <laughs> uh, just, sorry. Uh, the, um, the, the, the key question is, in my mind, well, what do we make of it? And philosophers at this point have kind of parted ways. Uh, so they, they, they all read the studies, but then they have kind of different interpretations of what the implications should be or what the implications are for ethics and morality. Uh, so some people take it in a quite a, a skeptical direction about lack of character. Others uh, are not as skeptical and they see room for the existence of character traits, even of a traditional kind like virtues and vices. So it's more interpreting the data rather than not being familiar with it. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, that's what I was going to ask you about. Let's jump into what those reactions were in more depth. Um, so it sounds like philosophers were also under the assumption that this idea of character existed in the first place and that that served as sort of the baseline and situationist concerns were sort of a surprise. Is that, yeah. is that fair? That's fair. Um, okay. So, so I, I mean, that's right. So here's how I would uh, kind of briefly summarize how some of this goes. Um, the, uh, the, it's first important to think about what kind of character traits we're looking at here. So we're looking at traditional virtues and vices. Okay. like honesty, compassion, and so forth. And the key feature of these character traits that's at issue is cross-situational consistency. Mm. So we would expect an honest person to be reliably honest, not just over time in the same situations, but across situations. So in the courtroom, at home, at the party, at the office, and so forth. And mm. same thing with the compassionate person. The compassionate person doesn't just help, uh, you know, at the supermarket, but also helps at a number of other uh, situations which arise in life. And so the debate has not been about whether character in general exists or not. Uh, even the most skeptical critics are willing to acknowledge the existence of some character traits or other. And I can say what those are in a moment. It's, the debate has been about whether these traditional cross-situationally consistent virtues and vices are present in the population. Mm. Uh, so to give you a contrast, uh, even the most skeptical, let's say, situationist philosophers uh, are willing to accept something like honesty just in the courtroom. Mm. So they accept that, that that exists, or courage just on the boat, or compassion just in the shopping mall. Okay. Uh, now that's not at all how people ordinarily think of those virtues. Right. Uh, it's not also not how, you know, philosophers traditionally like Aristotle and Plato would think of the virtues. These mm. are, these are called local traits, local to specific situations. Okay. And so even the most skeptical situations, philosophers were okay with that. The debate has centered just on instead on these quote unquote global character traits where the global has to do with, cross-situational consistency. And that's important because these are, it's not like this is some like esoteric or uh, irrelevant discussion. Those are the character traits that inform ordinary thinking 
They've informed philosophical discussions in the past, uh, and they're central to a leading view in ethics called virtue ethics, right. which I, I can unpack in a moment if, if you like. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's important to see that. So on the one hand, you have this, the situationist philosophers, and they'll say the best reading of the data suggests that most people do not have global character traits. And on the other hand, you'll have some people who are just more uh, optimistic. Um, they'll say, uh, well, um, the data is either ambiguous or doesn't clearly decide one way or the other, or is compatible with the possession of global character traits. So uh, mm -hmm. hopefully that's kind of frames yeah. the debate a little bit. Yeah. So how have those views evolved over time or are they largely, is there any nuance within even those two broad categories? Yes. Um, so I, uh, I think it, there are a different, some different positions you could now kind of nuance or, or delineate. Um, and this has been something that's evolved in the last, so the, this really got going at the turn of the century. So in the last 10 years or so, I think we've seen some more nuanced positions emerge. Mm -hmm. uh, one, um, one, one way to go is just to say, uh, yep, situations philosophers are right. Uh, global character traits are very rare. Um, mm -hmm. Almost no one possesses them or maybe no one possesses them. Another position you could take is to say, moral virtues are widespread. So despite the evidence from situationist psychology and from the situationist philosophers, no, actually, uh, the best view empirically is that most people have the moral virtues to some extent or other. Okay. A third position you could take is that, no, it's, it's, the, it's the opposite. There are, global character traits exist, and they're widespread, but they're the vices. So hmm. well, the best interpretation of the literature is, is one according to which most people have the traditional vices like cowardice or cruelty. Hmm. And then there's a fourth position, which uh, I'm a little biased because it's my position. So uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's the best position. And this one's a little bit, uh, may, might take a little while to get wrap our minds around, but it says um, global traits exist. People do have moral character traits which are across situationally consistent, but they're not virtues and they're not vices. They're what I call mixed character traits. Hmm. But they're, they're are, if, in a nutshell, our character is very much a mixed bag. In some situations, we'll act well. In other situations, we'll act poorly. We're not uh, good enough, typically, to count as virtuous. We're also not bad enough to count as vicious. Hmm. Nevertheless, we still have a stable and consistent character which is mixed um, so that hmm. you, you can still make predictions. Uh, you can still explain people's behavior using mixed character traits. Uh, so these are real things. They're important. Uh, they're explanatory and predictive, uh, but they're not moral virtues. They're not moral vices. And yet they're still cross-situationally consistent global traits. So there's... So that's a lot, a lot to unload on you. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 this is great. So um, are these mixed traits just like earlier we were distinguishing between like, okay, this is a moral characteristic. This is a 
you know, aesthetic characteristic. This is a mm -hmm. performance characteristic. Mm -hmm. Are mixed traits simply amoral traits? No, no. If only it was that easy. Um, no, it, it, uh, they are moral traits too. Um, they're just another kind of character trait that we have not paid much attention to. Uh, so I think at this point it might be helpful to give a, a real specific illustration. Yes, please. Um, yeah, so to keep it, to, to kind of uh, make it a little bit more tangible. So here's a, um, it'll, it'll be a little bit of a segue, but you'll see where, where I'm going eventually. Um, uh, here's a study from the 1990s, which I like to use a lot. It's by a psychologist named Robert Barron. And it had to do with helping in shopping malls. He had control. And so no one knew if they were part of a study until the end when they were debriefed. These were just ordinary shoppers going about their business in the mall. Uh, the control subjects ended up being those who had walked past clothing stores. Then they were approached to make change for a dollar. So the, uh, a simple helping task. Mm. And about 15 to 20% of them ended up doing it. Okay. The experimental participants, although they didn't know they were part of an experiment, uh, the experimental participants were those who instead, in the same shopping mall, different people, but in the same shopping mall, had walked past Mrs. Fields' cookies or Cinnabon. Mm. So they, uh, they didn't stop and buy anything. They just walked past it and experienced the fragrance. Mm. That group, about 65%, ended up helping on the exact same helping task. So you've got about uh, about a forty percent difference. Yeah, that's in huge. Helping. It's huge. Um, so what, why do I mention that? How is that relevant in autonomous character? Well, so I, I want to know what's the explanatory story? Why? What's the, what's 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 responsible for that effect? And we don't know this for sure, but at least one plausible explanatory story appeals to the role of mood maintenance. So the smell put the participants in a good mood that activate a desire to maintain the good mood. And then lo and behold, a few minutes later, here comes an opportunity to help, which could be seen as a way to maintain the good mood. Mm. So let me switch out of psychology for a moment and go into ethics. Uh, when I think about that, if that is the true account, and it may not be, but if it's the true account of what's going on there, then I think to myself, well, that's kind of a mixed bag. On the one hand, these people are helping, that's great. So they're helping. It's better to help than not help. On the other hand, their motivation is not the best. Uh, right. it's, it's not the, the most admirable or virtuous kind of motivation to be helping someone primarily in order to maintain your own good mood. Mm -hmm. So this is a, an example of a kind of mixed bag, um, mixed, uh, mixed character. But why do I say it's mixed character and an element of our character? Well, it's not limited just to shopping malls. Presumably, the desire to maintain a good mood is going to be something that could be relevant to lots of different situations, whether it's shopping malls or not, uh, whether it's helping they change, change for a dollar or not. Uh, and so it's going to have an impact on behavior that's cross-situational. And it could lead me to help in lots of different situations where I see helping as an opportunity to maintain my good mood. Mm. Whether that's at the mall, whether that's the office, whether that's at home or uh, on the cruise ship, wherever it, it might be. So I get a pattern of helping behavior that's cross-situationally consistent. Oh, that looks like 
a virtue. But wait a minute, no, 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 no. When I look deeper and I look at the underlying motivation, it's crummy. That's crummy motivation. That's self-interested right. motivation. And so we don't get virtue. Uh, we don't get vice either though. I mean, it's helping. You're, people are helping, it's great. It's not, it's not vicious. Uh, but again, it's not uh, for the right reasons. Um, so that's just meant to be a specific illustration of how our character actually is cross-situation consistent, but a way, in a way that's not very morally admirable uh, in a way that you expect a virtuous person to be. And then from there, you can just, I, I kind of give lots and lots of examples in my research. You can actually use Milgram in this context uh, to mm -hmm. talk about a desire to obey authorities. You can use bystander effect to talk about a desire to uh, avoid embarrassing ourselves in front of others. So uh, this kind of pattern that I see of mixed character is all over the place in the psychology literature. So let me see if I can, uh, let me see if I understand correctly. So, um, because I, I'm so used to thinking of things in terms of virtue and vice. Mm -hmm. um, so because the, the underlying motivation for the, this mixed bag mm -hmm. is not a particularly moral or non-moral motivation, it leads to manifesting in moral or less moral ways, depending upon the specific circumstances of how that motivation is going to interact with the situation at hand. Good, that's, that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, so the, the background assumption here is that in order to be a virtuous person, it's not enough just to display a certain pattern of behavior. Mm. That's necessary. I don't want to downplay that at all. Uh, you, you, if we're talking about traditional virtues, you have to be cross-situationally consistent in your virtuous behavior. However, that's only one part of the story. I'm an Aristotelian about this, so following Aristotle, uh, I think motivation has to be part of the story too. And so good behavior, but crappy motivation is going to be lack of virtue. And so what, you know, that invites the question of, well, what is uh, good motivation? Uh, and that's, that's a big story, and maybe you touched on that with, with uh, Dan Batson as well, because he's one of the, my heroes when it comes to talking about moral motivation. Um, but, you know, broadly speaking, for my, my way of thinking of it, uh, self-interested motivation is going to be off the table. If you're yeah. do, doing good things, but primarily for self-interested motives, then that doesn't count as virtuous. Mm. And we, then we have to look, well, what is on the table? And there, there are two candidates, I think, that are out there. And Batson, I think, would, would largely agree. One is dutiful motivation. So it's because my, it's been my duty, or I have to do it, I'm required, I have an obligation. That's impersonal, very impersonal motivation. The third uh, alternative is altruistic motivation, mm -hmm. so selfless motivation, for the good of the other person, irrespective of whether I benefit or not. Right. And so those are where we would look and we could, you know, go into deeper if that, if you like, for particular virtues like compassion or honesty. But that's where I would look. Have, uh, you, uh, have you read his book, um, What's Wrong With Morality? Or What's Wrong With Our Morals? Something like that? I've read that. Uh, I have not studied as closely as I've studied his earlier book, Altruism in Humans, which is one of my probably top three most favorite books in psychology. But I have read the one you're referring wow. to. Well, yeah. I'll have to read that one then. Um, yeah, no, I, I haven't read the book myself, but but from talking to Dan and hearing what you're saying, it seems like 
he would probably agree with your mixed bag conception of morality as like, okay, well, this is something that, you know, a, a person's, that basically morals, having morals doesn't necessarily guarantee doing the right behaviors and that we can see all these atrocities taking place from it. Um, right. right. Yeah. So yeah. And cl clearly just cognitively, cognitively knowing the right thing is nowhere near sufficient. So right. I, do, I do believe, you know, most people know what the morally right thing to do is, at least in some intellectual or, or, you know, uh, abstract sense. But there's a big gap between that and action, and and two things: first, appropriate motivation, and secondly, cross situation and consistent behavior. Yeah. So, what do you make of personally, as the mixed bag guy? Mm -hmm. What do you make of moral exemplars? Yeah. Yeah. Good. So, um, my view, to say it a little bit more precisely, uh, is that most people. And maybe, maybe we have to say most people in the West, because so many of these studies are done with Western participants. And maybe we have to say even more precisely, most people in recent years, since we don't have studies going back hundreds of years, mm -hmm. most people in recent years in the West seem to exhibit a mixed character. Now, I start there in answering the question because I want to highlight the word most. Right. Uh, I think it's a bell curve. Uh, with some outliers on each end. So you're going to have your moral exemplars on, well, you could even say moral exemplars of both kinds. You have your positive moral exemplars and you have negative moral exemplars. So positive right. on the one hand, you know, for honesty, maybe it's Abraham Lincoln. For courage, maybe it's Harry Tubman. On the negative side, negative exemplars, you have your Hitlers and your Stalins. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, absolutely I want to acknowledge the existence of such people. Uh, I also want to say that uh, even in their case, it's not like they had perfect moral character. Uh, everyone has some flaws and some shortcomings, but they were a heck of a lot better than most of us. Myself, I'll, I'll speak in my own case, a heck of a lot better than <laughs> me. Um, uh, and so they exist empirically. Well, at like, least at least the uh, positive exemplars are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah thank you. I, I have a feeling you're not as bad as Hitler. So. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's important. Yeah. Clarification. Um, uh, and then, um, so that they, on empirical grounds, I'm comfortable and confident that they exist. And then there's a second uh, uh, way in which I'm, I'm really intrigued by exemplars, which is how they can be helpful for character improvement. Mm. So it, yeah. you know, it's one thing just to diagnose, okay, this is how we are today. And then there's another thing, well, can we get better? If we have this mixed character, are we kind of stuck with it? Or are there actual concrete steps we can take to improve our character? Yeah. And, and one strategy I spent a lot of time thinking about and, and writing about is actually looking to exemplars to help us become better people. Mm. So. Yeah. But, but I mean, how, how, so maybe the next question is just like, how, what have you found in looking at exemplars to be strategies for helping us become better people? Yeah. So um, I, I, this is kind of newer research for me. Uh, okay. Been this in the last few years. And it's, this is kind of also symptomatic of how things are going in philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, the situationist debate in philosophy is uh, getting a little stale and a little, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, burned out at okay. the moment. And, yeah. But, it, but it, it, as often happens, new um, 
new avenues open up for exploration. And one of the, I think, most active and interesting new avenue that's come up, uh, or relatively new avenue, is character improvement. So mm-hmm. let's just not spend our time arguing about what we actually like, but what, what can philosophers contribute to the discussion of how to become better people? Yeah. And so I, I've outlined uh, several strategies, uh, one of which is exemplars. And there, uh, I would say, uh, the, the, the idea is this. Uh, we look to exemplars, and there are different kinds of exemplars. There are historical exemplars, there are contemporary exemplars. There are real exemplars, there are also fictional exemplars in, in, in works mm. of fiction. There are uh, kind of distant exemplars who are so much better than we are, and there are more relatable exemplars. Mm. But if, in particular, in the case of contemporary, relatable exemplars, uh, they can have a significant impact on our moral thinking uh, mm. and, and emotions along the following lines. So w- w- uh, we tend to admire first of all, such exemplars. So I might um, admire the work that Paul Farmer is doing in Haiti, uh, helping people who don't have much opportunity for medical care. Mm-hmm. I might admire the work that uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln did in being honest under all kinds of temptations to be dishonest. Uh, but then admiration is not enough. It's admiration followed by emulation, an emotional response, uh, uh, what height um, would characterizes elevation uh, mm. to tr- bring my character and who I am more in line with the character of the exemplar. Because mm. I could just admire someone from a distance and not have it have much impact on me. And I can am- admire uh, how well the gymnastics team did in the Olympics, but I'm not really moving, moving towards the, uh, you know, right. training in gymnastics, but it's, it's a twofold process. Admiration followed by emulation whereby I'm emotionally not just cognitively, but emotionally inspired and moved to change my life, to have it better reflect the life of the exemplar. Bring my character up to the exemplar's level, if I can, or try work towards that, rather than bringing the exemplar's character down to my level. Yeah. But I guess I, because it seems like in order to do that in the first place is to suppose that people have a less well, maybe I'm wrong. It seems like in order to do that, in order to shape one's behavior toward these things and keeping consistent behavior across different settings as a goal would require one to have character in the first place such that you mm-hmm. want to keep your character stable across these different contexts. Yeah, good, good, yeah, yep. Um, and so for this strategy and for all the other ones I've also uh, thought of, there's a limit to how effective they could be. Uh, so for, for psychopaths, for example, you know, this, this is not even worth going there. Uh, for people who are vicious, who have already formed their character so much over time in a, in a, in a bad or even evil direction, there's, uh, you know, it's, there's only so much that can be done. I'm not saying it's hopeless. I think there's character changes possible even in those cases, but only so much can be expected. Yeah. What I'm uh, thinking of here are these, these mixed character individuals like myself, mm-hmm. um, where you know, uh, people tend to th- have moral beliefs, to think certain things are right and wrong, and, and, and have, you know, often have good moral beliefs, and uh, are uh, interested in morality and want to some extent to become a good person, mm-hmm. but they also want, lo- want lots of other things in life too. 
Yeah. Uh, so they you know, want to pursue their self-interest uh, and, and that can take many, uh, many forms as well. So that, that's who I'm really interested in and, and, and targeting. Okay. Um, um, and, ba- and I'm sorry, I'm, maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but backing up also to just the idea of the exemplar in general, um, it's not that you think that exemplars aren't a mixed bag, right? I, I'm assuming you're operating from the assumption that everybody is a mixed bag, but somehow exemplars have, particularly positive exemplars, have habituated to the more positive aspects of that mixed bag. Yeah. So this is where this might be a dif- disciplinary difference. Um, okay. I've noticed many times when talking to psychologists, uh, because philosophers tend to work with thresholds, uh, whereas psychologists, when it comes to character and personality more generally, don't tend to work with thresholds. By that I mean, uh, when philosophers tend to think about, um, say, say that the, the spectrum of, uh, of matters of lying and cheating, where are people on the spectrum when it comes to lying? Mm. Uh, they'll tend to have kind of carve up the spectrum and they'll say, uh, over here on the, on the left-hand side, that's an honest person. Okay. And then there's going to be a kind of threshold requirement you have to meet in order to count as an honest person. And over here on the right-hand side are the dishonest people. There are certain threshold requirements that you have to meet because a dishonest person. So we, we, we think of these as kind of categorical traits, as, to use the psychologist ling- lingo, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, cla- ways to classify people. Uh, that's, that's the way philosophers are often working here. And so I'm adopting that framework too. Now to answer your question more directly, uh, I'm thinking this bell curve I have in my, my mind, mm-hmm. I think of the bell curve, the, most people are in this middle ground, this middle right. territory uh, with a mixed character. I'm classifying them that way. Okay. And then I, I think, okay, on the outliers, I've got a classification for the people on the left. That's virtuous or in this example, honest. And we got a classification for people on the right end of the, of the bell curve too. Those are the dishonest ones. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about the exemplars, um, I think well, someone like Lincoln, well, he, his character actually made it across the threshold. He, he, we, can, we can classify him no longer as mixed when it comes to honesty, but actually as virtuous. He has the virtue of honesty. Okay. And Stalin or, or Hitler, uh, well, they actually made across the threshold too. It's just the other, the other threshold for cruelty uh, okay. in, in their case. So this is something I run into again and again, and I'm sorry if it's confusing for psychology <laughs> listeners, um, but it's, it's a really actually a big disciplinary divide that um, where we, 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 run, we run into trouble. Okay. And so um, just I want to direct the conversation back to some of these strategies. So mm-hmm. you had mentioned that sort of trying to emulate these exemplars might be one strategy. What are some of the other ones? Yeah. Um, so I'll mention them. And I, these are strategies which I would say are kind of, they sound good to me as a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And I see other philosophers and people who think about character putting them forward as well. But they all need a lot more rigorous empirical testing. Okay. So, so I'm not putting it forward anything which I would feel really confident about on empirical grounds. Unfortunately, the empirical testing is needed, I think, or the best kind is also a really difficult kind to do, which is going to be 
longitudinal studies where you're going to have an experimental group and you're going to have a control group and you know the experimental group gets the uh the particular strategy and then it you know mm-hmm. periodically we, we check over time a week later a month later a year later to see using some good measure of of character some good assessment uh, technique whether the strategy is actually uh, effective or not but alas we don't have those studies so uh, to take this for what it with a grain of salt, put it that way. Um, so a second idea would be uh, the importance of moral reminders. Uh, so it's easy throughout daily life to get sidetracked by something that's tempting or something that's conducive to our self-interest. Uh, and the nice thing about moral reminders is that they can help get our perspective back on track when it comes to what really matters: hmm. being a good person, doing the right thing. Uh, so. Uh, some ordinary examples, and then I'll mention a, a study as well. Some ordinary examples would be things like um, starting each day with a certain reading um, that's ethically relevant, uh, mm. or um, getting uh, text messages on your phone, uh, certain or emails uh, which have more reminders as part of them, or people wear jewelry or, or uh, bracelets or even tattoos which can serve that purpose. Um, there's a study I like to mention in this context, which I won't go into all the details unless you want to, but uh, the upshot of it is participants uh, in a control situation uh, had no opportunity to cheat. Uh, they, they, took, they took a test. They got about seven problems per, uh, correct mm-hmm. on the test. Uh, particip- different participants in a uh, taking the same test who had an opportunity to cheat, they could report whatever... Uh, number of correct problems they wanted, no questions asked. Oh, and by the way, there's a monetary incentive of 50 cents per correct answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tended to cheat a fair amount. Uh, in, in one version, it was 14, quote unquote, problems answered correct, correctly mm. in, in, this, uh, in this version. But in a third version, where the participants, different participants, again, uh, sign their university's honor code first, mm-hmm. pledging that their honor then took the test, same monetary incentive, and had the same opportunity to cheat, no questions asked, get away with it, no chance of detection, uh, the, uh, the reported average score went back down to the control level. Yeah. So, so Is that they, Dan Ireley's work? Uh, and, some... and, and colleagues, yes. Uh, that oh, all, okay. That whole group of, of people, um, there's a, they, they kind of, uh, uh, they, they're kind of, uh, Gino and Shu and, and a bunch of others uh, tend to tend to write a lot together. Um, and this is there are variations of this. So for example, there's a one I got a lot of attention where it was recall as many of the Ten Commandments as you can mm. instead of the honor code, and the same effect was observed in the initial study. Uh, unfortunately, that just failed to replicate. Um, so that's that's why oh. I didn't make that one. Uh, but it's, it got a lot of attention at the time. It's cited all over the place. But it, a big uh, attempted replication just just failed. Um, so, uh, so, you know, my, my only point in bringing that up is just as, as a, as an illustration of a moral reminder. In this case, the honor code, uh, helps people get back on track and thinking about morality. And then lo and behold, uh, later on, uh, there was, there was little to no cheating. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be a second, uh, strategy that I would, uh, put forward. First one be, uh, exemplars. Second one be moral reminders. And then a, a third one uh, I call 
and there, there are others, but I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, uh, I call getting the word out, mm -hmm. uh, which is my own label for just uh, improved self-awareness and self-understanding. Mm -hmm. Because what I see in a lot of the studies in psychology uh, is good evidence of psychological influences on behavior that we don't even know are there or at least we're not aware of the extent to which they're influencing our behavior. Mm. Because they, maybe they're unconscious or maybe they're conscious, but we don't pay enough attention to them. So things like um, the power of a desire to obey authority figures. You know, Milgram showed us a lot about that, which we didn't appreciate beforehand. The power of uh, a desire to not embarrass ourselves, a fear of embarrassment. Mm. The bystander effect in the group effect literature tells us a lot about that. Um, the power of uh, helping others so as to maintain a good mood. Example from earlier. Not as maybe as important, but just as another illustration. Yeah. So the, the idea here is that um, if we can gain some greater familiarity with these underlying psychological influences on our behavior, then we can also work to curb them, correct them, adjust them, work against them, if they're going to lead us to do something bad. Um, yeah. And so that's why, uh, the, the, I mean, I'm not saying go out and get, you know, all the latest issues of uh, journal personality or something like that, or uh, JPSP or something and, and start reading uh, the latest studies. I and mean, that's not, that's not realistic. Uh, yeah. But there are other ways to find out about this, uh, uh, the, where the studies and the results have been transmitted that kind of uh, are, uh, are filtering down into society at large where, you know, such that next time I'm in a group of people and no one's helping, and initially I'm holding back too, I'm, I'm reticent to help, I might remember, wait a minute, I have no good reason for not helping. Yeah. Why, why I'm hesitating is probably because I'm, fear, I'm afraid of embarrassing myself, and that's not a good enough reason. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how much um, it seems like just having that knowledge really can change your tendency to act like I wonder how many people have started to intervene in you know unfolding muggings or something after right, learning yeah. about Kitty Genovese and all of that right, right. so there's a, a study from 1978 uh, that unfortunately is it's from 1978 so it's a long time ago and it hasn't been replicated but at least I'll just throw it out as one small piece of empirical data uh, where they had uh, students attend a lecture on the group effect then uh, two weeks later, those students confronted a rigged emergency. Mm. So they didn't know it was rigged, but it was, you know, the kind of setup uh, where there was an emergency going on and there were bystanders who were not helping. Mm. And so the uh, results they reported, uh, this is Beeman et al., 1978, uh, uh, was something, don't quote me on, or <laughs> I guess you're not going to quote me on the recording, <laughs> but uh, something along the lines of roughly 42% uh, helped versus 25% of controls helping. In the yeah. Same wow. That's so really that, cool. That's it's something. Yeah, it is something. It makes us hopeful that uh, psychology is maybe capable of doing good in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Yep. So as you've been talking about this stuff, especially earlier on in the conversation, it got me thinking about, um, social media and big tech at large, because I think that one of the kind of uncomfortable aspects of social media is that 
you really are held accountable to some degree for having the same character across a bunch of different situations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whereas people might be willing to post something that they would naturally tell one small part of their social circle when they start to post on Facebook or Twitter or wherever it goes everywhere and it starts to bleed, you know, boundaries between how you act at home, how you act at work, how you mm. act at your church what, or what, what have you. Right. Um, and I think it makes kind of this uncomfortable tension that, people like Mark Zuckerberg didn't fully appreciate when they first started. I think they might've been operating again out of sort of that character assumption that people are the same across these settings mm. or the assumption that people ought to be the same across these social settings, mm. which mm. is another, you know, assumption that I think hasn't even really been addressed with situationism, at least not that I'm aware of. And that's probably because it's been um, discussed in terms of morality primarily. Um, but it's not, I'm just thinking out loud here, but it's not necessarily the case that for sort of amoral concerns that you necessarily want to behave the same way stably from situation to situation. Right, right, right. So yeah, the, I, I actually had not thought about the connection of social media that you just outlined. Um, I, so I think I, I would really want to think about that more. My, I have two initial thoughts. One is, uh, I think you're right about that presenting yourself in a certain way across platforms uh, in, a, in, a, in a consistent way. That's, there's more emphasis on that perhaps than in the past. I mm. wonder how much of that presentation though is authentic. So I wonder right. uh, if that's really your true self you're presenting or a kind of persona that you're, you're crafting to make yourself, not you personally, no offense, of course, uh, but, <laughs> but, but, what, but one, is, one is presenting uh, yeah. a kind of projected character that you want other people to think that you have or to see you as having, which may or may not uh, have much relationship to your actual character. Um, right. So then there's that. Um, and I, I think you're comparing what people say when they have their name attached to a comment or to mm -hmm. a post versus what they say when they can anonymously post uh, would be quite right. revealing. Um, on, the, on the broader point about the should of consistency. Should we always aim to be consistent across situations? I think uh, there's a, a yes and a no answer to that. Um, so a virtuous person should be consistently virtuous across situations. An honest person should be honest in the courtroom, right. classroom, et cetera. Um, but what that looks like will have to be very nuanced. So it, sometimes it's like understood in a very flat-footed way that they you know, they have to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, uh, you know, in all these situations without any um, uh, kind of sensitivity to what's going on. Yeah. Or, or they have to switch examples, be compassionate, they have to, you know, donate the exact same amounts to all these different causes or help in exactly the same way. No, life is way more complicated and nuanced and, and rich than that. So mm -hmm. what my helping look might look like, uh, to someone who's asking for money outside of the supermarket might look very different than what my helping might look like for a student who's coming to me to uh, better understand the material for class. Uh, it needs yeah. to be 
sensitive to the particularities of the situation and of the individuals we're interacting with in those situations. Yeah, I think that's kind of the kind of the spirit of of why maybe virtue ethicists are particularly disturbed by situationism because um, you know, like Kant, that was one of the things with Kant, right? Was oh, well, would you lie to a Nazi when you're harboring mm -hmm. Jews? Well, of course you would if you were going to say that you were moral. Um, and, you know, in lying, you are still upholding certain ethical principles across a situation, even though it might not manifest as telling the truth in that specific environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, right. But I was also, I guess, making a larger point about just non-moral considerations altogether. So take something like um, extroverted, the, the trait of extroversion. Mm -hmm. It's not, I think it would be potentially a bad thing if there was no situational effect on a person's level of extroversion. Mm -hmm. It's not clear to me that that's very adaptive, both just socially as well as evolutionarily. Um, it's not clear to me that that is necessarily a bad thing. So I think that could help explain why situationism is particularly troubling for um, scholars of morality as opposed to scholars of, um, you know, performance traits and things. Yeah, so there's a lot to, to unpack there. Um, I... Uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, in the old psychology uh, debate, as far as I understand it, the person situation debate, the personality traits that were often discussed were these kind of situation invariants or situation free traits, mm -hmm. uh, where, where the details of the situation weren't supposed to matter uh, much to the manifestation of the trait. At least that's one way to understand what that means. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not myself uh, interested in those kind of traits. Uh, and it would be very surprising if there, frankly, if there were such, such traits, uh, mm -hmm. as you said. Um, the, but I've always uh, been interested in our character traits, which are highly sensitive to the situations, uh, and which, if they're virtues, are going to uh, respond appropriately to the facts of the situation. Uh, yeah. So to tie that back to the, the uh, Kant example, um, I'm not so interested in an approach to morality, which involves simple rules. Like right. you know, Kant you know, famously said, lying is always wrong uh, in, in an essay called On the Supposed Morality, uh, Right to, to Lie. Um, uh, that's to me not very helpful. And Kant has more nuance than that anyway. Um, what I think is better is to think of a, a position which involves character traits like virtues, um, which take into account, okay, in this particular situation, uh, there's questions about, there's an opportunity to lie or tell the truth to the Nazi at the door, mm -hmm. uh, or in Kant's example, the axe murder at the door. But there's also, we have to keep in mind, there's an innocent person in the basement who I'm protecting. And yeah. so given the complexities of this particular situation, which may not uh, you know, carry over to lots of other situations, I need to weigh both the value of telling the truth alongside the value of protecting an innocent life. So my, the virtue of honesty needs to be weighed alongside the virtue of compassion 
Mm. And from a virtual ethical perspective, that would involve practical, uh, practical wisdom assessing which is more important and coming to the conclusion that, well, uh, in this case, compassion is going to outweigh honesty. Yeah. Uh, and so the right thing to do, all things considered, is to lie to the Nazi at the door. Yeah. And so with that as kind of our, our, our last sort of topic in closing, it sounded like you didn't necessarily ID- identify as a virtue ethicist because of this mixed bag um, view, and, and maybe I'm wrong on that, so this is a good place for you to correct me if I'm wrong on that, um, is wisdom itself a mixed bag, or is that a stable trait? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so wisdom is one of the virtues as well. It's in Aristotle's way of thinking, it's maybe the most important or foundational virtue. Uh, so I would say that it's it's a virtue, it's not a mixed trait. Um, because I have this way of thinking where we've got categories and thresholds mm. and taxonomies and this kind of thing. So it's right, separate right. from a mixed trait. Uh, it's something that we should aspire towards. We should all be working towards acquiring wisdom alongside of the other virtues. And uh, the broader point about virtue ethics, I think we want to keep in mind the difference between the facts as they actually are and then what we should be doing and what's good and valuable. So virtue ethics is talking about the life that we should be living. It's quite compatible with being a virtue ethicist that you think that most people don't actually have the virtues. In fact, Aristotle thought that himself. Mm-hmm. Aristotle thought most people do not have the virtues, do not possess, their character is not good enough to count as honest or compassionate. And so in that sense, Aristotle would agree with some of the things that are coming out of situationism in terms of lack of traditional mm-hmm. virtues. Yeah. The key thing is not how we actually are, it's how we should be. So given that we're, we're falling short, we should strive to become better over the course of our lives, work towards changing our characters, and society can help us and other friends can help us and other, other sources, resources can help us, so that our character moves from being mixed to becoming virtuous. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christian. It's great to be with you today. Thanks so much for all the great questions. (laughs) I had a lot of fun and um, I appreciate it. I'm gonna have to sit and chew on this idea of the mixed bag because it's definitely new to me. Um, what, What paper would you recommend to me to go and read to learn more? Well, um, I had paper is harder, uh, so I've booked my book. easier, but, but <laughs> it depends on how much time you have. Um, so, uh, so I've got two recommendations, uh, a books at least. Um, okay. If it if it's for a um, if we're talking about it for a non-academic audience, then I recommend a, a most recent book called The Character Gap: How Good Are We, which came out right. with Oxford in 2017. Uh, for, the, for those who really want to dive into the nitty-gritty details, either psychologists or philosophers, with a lot of citations and studies and all that kind of thing, then I would say uh, my 2013 book, uh, More Character and Empirical Theory, might be a good place to start. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com.
The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Crewbie by Kynes Weider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.